Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Courtney. And this is the Dance Better Podcast. This is our platform to shed some light on the impact that ballet training has on the mental health of both current and former dancers. Together with some amazing experts, we're discovering what things dancers can do to help counteract some of those habits and ideas that might not be serving them. So keep listening to hear real stories from real dancers, mental health professionals, and many more to help you dance better. Hey everyone, this is Sarah, and today Courtney and I spoke to Kathleen Gaines, a former dancer, writer, and mental health advocate for dancers. Over the last 10 years, Kathleen has written more than 150 articles for Dance Magazine, Point Magazine, Dance Spirit, and Dance Teacher Magazine. She's also the founder of Minding the Gap, a mental health program designed to see that the mental health of dancers is treated with the same seriousness as physical health in the dance culture. Yes, Kathleen not only has so much passion about addressing the mental health and ballet conversation, but she also comes armed and ready with so many ideas for how to spark that change in the ballet community for students, parents, schools, and collegiate programs alike. We just want to mention to you guys that none of us are mental health professionals, so anything that you hear us say in the episode are just experiences from our own lives. Maybe a couple of things that worked for us or things that didn't work for us, but none of that should be considered medical advice. If any of the things that we share resonate with you and feel like you need some help with some things like we did, uh, we encourage you to talk to your doctor to find the best healthcare professional for you. We also want to mention anything we say in this podcast is a reflection of our dance experience as a whole and not any one teacher, studio, or company. Secondly, the opinions shared by our guest in this episode are those of our guest and their personal experience from their individual viewpoint. Experiences and opinions shared while cathartic are also for a mutual purpose to aid in opening a dialogue about making experiences better for artists everywhere. You guys, this was a must-hear conversation with Kathleen, and we are so excited to share it with you. Here you go. Hey, everybody. This is Sarah. Hey, Courtney. How are you doing? Hello. Hey, I'm Hi. doing very well. How are you? <laughs> everybody, we just want to welcome Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, ladies. It's great to be here. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today, guys. Kathleen is the creator of Minding the Gap, and Kathleen's here to tell us a little bit about her organization and her history in dance and what she's doing to help uh, reshape the landscape of the dance world. So, so exciting. Um, when you, when you say it like that, it's like no small thing. (laughs) No small thing. (laughs) It's changing the world. No biggie. Yeah. No big deal. So Kathleen, let's just dive in. Um, Kathleen, if you could just tell us kind of quickly your, a brief rundown of your history in dance, and then also how your mental health sort of played into that and how it evolved over time. Sure. So um, my background is very similar to, I think, a a lot of us who have pursued um, professional ballet. I started dancing very young, um, originally from upstate New York, Binghamton, New York. Um, I left home when I was 14 years old to train with Pittsburgh Ballet Theater School's uh, pre-professional program. And then when I was 17, I left for San Francisco Ballet School's um, pre-professional program. Um, And I did summers at uh, SAB in Chautauqua. Um, So I was in a a very highly competitive dance environment at a very, very young age and without my parents at a very young age and, um, you know, kind of my childhood friends and everything. Um, A fairly common experience uh, for those dancers who are who are striving for professional ballet careers in particular. Um, And let's see the, the way that my mental health came into it really you know, I was never a very confident dancer, kind of ever. (laughs) You know, I just, I didn't have kind of that wellspring of confidence that I think dancers really need to have um, and cultivate in order to be able to withstand the kinds of corrections and criticism um, that dancers deal with, um, especially when they're very young and still kind of developing their identity and developing their sense of self and and all of those things. Um, And then when I went to San Francisco, I sustained my first injury, a stress fracture um, to my second metatarsal. 
and that really was kind of, that was what kind of set off my first major depression. And, you know, I went from being in a situation where I was being looked at. I was preparing to dance in quarter ballet roles with the company in the Nutcracker and things were going really well. And then, um, you know, I got hurt and I just vanished, you know? Mm. So, um, you know, I, I, because I did not have great coping skills because mental health was not something that was discussed in the dance studio and even less so then. So this was, you know, I don't want to age myself here, but this was, you know, (laughs) you're in good company. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) This was in the early aughts, you know, like the very, very early aughts. Um, I'm right there with you. Yeah. (laughs) So things have, have changed even since then, you know, um, but not enough. We'll get to that. I'm sure. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I learned my coping mechanisms from my peers and that came in the form of disordered eating. And that came in the form of drinking and drug abuse. And that came in the form of the use of diet pills. And, um, and, and truly I didn't realize I was going through depression. I thought I was just weak. I thought I was just this, this, weak little person that didn't have what it took to be a dancer. Wow. I mean, I, I like it just, yeah, so far that really resonates with me personally. Um, I also went to Chautauqua actually. So oh. we'll have to talk about that later and see if yeah. we overlapped at all. <laughs> I actually went twice. I had oh, wow. a really rough summer at Chautauqua when I was uh-huh. younger. And yeah. then I had one of the best summers of my dancing life, maybe one of the best experiences of my dancing life when I went back when I was older. Yeah. Um, Wow. Okay. So you, I mean, you kind of carrying us through those, like those difficulties that you were having, those lower moments where you wrote down, like I wrote down, you were saying, just thinking like you were weak instead of understanding that you're dealing with mental health and it's its own thing. And it's outside of outside of you in the sense that like, it's not, it's not a weakness. Right. Um, so from that moment, how did that evolve into forming minding the gap? I know you became a writer and you, you know, you're a journalist. So how, what was that transition like for you? Sure. Um, definitely. So when I stopped dancing, when I decided to stop dancing and go to school, um, I, um, I was trying to figure out what else am I? You know, I hadn't cultivated any kind of an identity outside of dance at all. I I had Mm -hmm. no idea what value I could have to the world outside of being a dancer. And even more importantly, what value I could have had to myself outside of being a dancer where I could find some joy. Um, So I really started thinking about it. And during those really, really dark times, the, the really difficult time I went through in San Francisco, I kept a really, really detailed journal. Um, and I didn't do it consciously because I was like, well, this will be good for my mental health. Like we know journaling is for many people. Um, mm-hmm. I did it very much from a place of like, dear diary, my life sucks. Please listen to me. <laughs> and, yeah. and it was cathartic. Um, uh-huh. It was probably the best coping mechanism I, cre- I had. <laughs> um, and so as I was thinking about it, what do I want to do? What makes me happy? I think it was my mom asked me, well, what else makes you happy? And I said, well, I really like writing in my journal. So from there, I decided to go to school for writing. Um, I, st- I went to eventually the University of Pittsburgh for writing. Um, has a, they have a fantastic writing program. I had danced there. I love the city. Um, so I came back to Pittsburgh. I got my degree in writing actually in fiction because I really didn't want to write, write about dance. <laughs> and I was so kind of, see how that turned out. Yeah. Isn't that so funny? I mean, I think most of the guests that we've had on who are in out fields outside of the dance world, but are somehow related to the dance world, they always say, well, when I first started doing this thing, I didn't want to have anything to do with dance and now here they are. So I think that's really relatable to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, there's no easy way to leave dance. There's no easy way to, to stop being a dancer. I mean, yes, once a dancer, always a dancer to an extent, but we could have a whole podcast discussion about that because I have a lot of feelings about that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, there's no easy way to do it. There's no easy time to do it. It is hard. And 
you know, as I've seen with, with even my close friends, even if you do get the storied career with the big send off and you think, oh, what a lovely, perfect ending. Even then it's hard. Like there's no easy way to do it. Um, and so I was just very emotionally kind of scarred by the loss that I had sustained by the pain I had endured. Um, and so I just really, I just did not want to talk about it. <laughs> like, and you know, you get into writing class and even though it's fiction, they're like, write what you know, where's your story about dance? And you're just kind of like, oh God, okay. <laughs> so I started- You don't want to actively go back there. <laughs> right. I was like, why would I choose that? to go think about that again? I know. And, and yet, you know, there's truth to it. Um, and I ultimately proved all of my professors right. <laughs> um, because when I, when I graduated from high school or from college, excuse me, I ended up taking an internship with Dance Magazine um, because I needed to figure out how to get published. And it's like, you have to be published to get published. And like, how are you going to do this? And I was like, well, I, I love magazine writing. I'd love to see how a magazine works. I, I was offered this internship. So I went and lived on my friend's couch. She was a dancer with complexions at the time. And I lived on her couch and fed her cat while she was on tour and did this internship in New York and lived off a piece of pizza every day because that's all I could afford. And, you know, but it was um, one of the smartest things I've ever done um, because in doing that, I really faced my dragons, so to speak. And I found mm -hmm. a really profound love of dance writing because I realized that I could help people. Um, yeah. I had the opportunity to, to say the things I wish someone had said to me, to ask the questions I wish I had known to ask, um, to talk to the experts who really can help dancers and help them reach the dancers. Um, so I really fell in love with it. Um, and then in 2017, the editor-in-chief of Dance Magazine came to me and said, um, we're going to do some more op-ed kind of stuff. And if you have anything you feel really strongly about, um, you know, I'd love to have your voice. And I was like, oh boy, do I have something I feel strongly about. <laughs> Here we go. Fantastic. Um, and, yeah. And through, through all these articles, you know, I'd probably written close to a hundred articles by then. And through all of those articles and interviews, I talked to all these dancers and, and mental health professionals. I started writing about mental health very quickly. Um, and I had learned a lot about myself and my own journey in mental health and dance. And so when she gave me that opportunity, I wrote an article called, Why Are We Still So Bad at Addressing Dancers' Mental Health? Um, and in it, I shared my own experience um, in a way that was very open and um, took me three days to hit send because of it. Um, <laughs> And then also I kind of was like, look, there's some really basic stuff we can do here. So why aren't we doing it? This is such little stuff. Let's do it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the article went viral. Um, it, it, I mean, it's one of the most read articles they've ever published and it was mm -hmm. absolutely dumbfounding. Um, reading through all the comments people were posting, people reaching out to me. Um, it was shocking. It was very cathartic. It was like, oh, I guess you're not a weak loser. <laughs> <laughs> you know but yeah, yeah right I mean you put yeah. your voice out there and suddenly you yeah. have hundreds thousands agreeing with you and totally yeah. relating. that's amazing and then yeah and then at the same time it was like so depressing it was like mm -hmm. oh my gosh this is a really really big deal like I knew it was yeah. a big deal sure but I didn't mm -hmm. know it was as big a deal and I also didn't yeah. realize how willing dancers would be to speak about it Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I spoke to a young dancer who told me after that reading that article was the first time her and her friends talked about mental health together. Wow. Um, wow. That, goosebumps. that just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> like I almost cried. I was like, don't cry in front of this child. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think, I think that's really, it's shocking, but not surprising. If that makes sense. You know, we all know that there are so many things that we're taught to, I mean, I'm starting to use the word groomed because that's what it is where children are being groomed to believe certain things about themselves and about the world. And, you know, we're groomed to just suck it up and accept 
so many things as as professional dancers and as pre-professional students. So why why would our mental health be any different? It should just be something we should just suck up and, and move forward. So, I mean, that's wonderful that you had so many people reaching out, but it's surprising, like you said. Yeah, it's the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. you know? I, you know, I have a friend who told me, you know, that likened it to the, you know, the, had that story of the emperor with no clothes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, when finally somebody just says he's not wearing any clothes, <laughs> it, you know, it was yeah. kind of like that. Like I was like, mm-hmm. Hey guys, <laughs> it's right here. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you and, wrote that article and then kind of what, what, uh, what, what did that spark? I mean, honestly, it sparked a sense of responsibility for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I, f- I felt a responsibility. I felt that I had kind of rung a bell and that a lot of people, I mean, people were literally reaching out to me saying, we're with you. What do we do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, deer in the right. headlights. Well, uh, well. Gee, let me think. <laughs> well, let's just take on the institution of dance and change the whole culture. You know? Um, yeah. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that really is kind of where Minding the Gap came from. Um, mm-hmm. that coupled with the opportunity I had shortly after that article was published, Garfield Lamonius, who's the, the head of the dance department at Point Park University here in Pittsburgh, yeah. I guess mentioned the article to actually a friend of mine who also works at Point Park. And she was <laughs> like, oh, I know her. She lives here. Do you want to talk to her? You know? amazing wow super small world kind of stuff yeah and he invited me to speak to the dancers at point park i mean they rounded up all 300 dancers in an auditorium and i was to go in and speak to them um and it was a very terrifying experience because writer plus dancer does not speak or make um but (laughs) (laughs) but i got it together we we don't know what that's all about at all (laughs) So I spoke to the dancers and, you know, I was very nervous. Um, my friend and colleague, Dr. Lisa Varla, who is um, a national certified counselor who works with athletes and dancers here in Pittsburgh and a, form- a former dancer herself, came with me for the Q&A because, of course, I get asked a lot of questions by dancers. I am not a mental health professional. So, you know, I'm never going to be willing to, to give advice as, as though I am. So I like to bring them with me everywhere I go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Um, and so, but Lee and I were both completely stunned that at the end, we were both terrified that during Q and A, we were just going to be sitting up there roasting under the lights. Right. And quite the opposite. Those dancers peppered us with questions for 45 minutes. And it really felt like we had like, we had like pulled a levy or something. Like they had just been waiting Mm -hmm. for this opportunity and for somebody to just ask them. Mm -hmm. And they were asking these thoughtful, caring, important questions. And I think the combination of those two things, you know, the, the reaction to the article and then the interaction I had and the opportunity I had, you know, that someone invited me in, yeah. um, mm-hmm. made me realize that, that something like Mining the Gap was possible. And so mm-hmm. I started Mining the Gap officially in 2019 um, and have kind of launched what I'm, what I would consider using entrepreneurial speak, um, our proof of concept pilot, which Mm -hmm. is this program with Point Park. Fantastic. Yeah. So with that program at Point Park, out of the talk that you gave and all those wonderful questions and answers is how did you go about putting together a collegiate curriculum? So you want stuff that kids can use within the college dance setting, but also they need to be able to take those tools out into the real world as professional dancers or uh, arts administrators or, or whatever it is they end up doing, dance or not. So how do you come up with that curriculum? It's a great question. Um, so the first thing that's important to point out is that our work is very skills-based and very education-based. Um, it is not clinical. Um, so when I am presenting and working with teachers and dance students, because we are working with both, um, it's always myself with a mental health professional who specializes pretty heavily in the topic that we're talking about and who has a background with dancers. Um, and truly what we're teaching dancers isn't that different than what any college student would benefit from learning in terms of their mental health. 
we're putting it in the dance container so that we're using languages, language and examples that are based in their reality and their concerns. Mm. We're also focusing on topics that are directly a reflection of their experiences. So, you know, for example, our first session with the students talked about mostly about self-talk and how we speak to ourselves and how we manage the thoughts coming into our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think yeah. espe- I think especially when you're younger and I mean, late teens and early twenties, that's when you're most likely to go through your first mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's because you don't have these skills <laughs> and because, you know, developmentally, your, your, your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 26 years old, you know? Um, right. So if we, if we can do some of that training, that skills training at a younger age, where you can learn that just because you have the thought, I'm the worst dancer in the room, doesn't make it true. <laughs> yes, yes, that is so, so, such a powerful sentence right there. Just because yeah. you think it doesn't make it truth. And I'm paraphrasing Dr. Lee Scavarlo there um, mm-hmm. because she's just brilliant. But, and she's the one that did this kind of self-talk discussion with them. So, you know, it's about talking through things like that and just bringing it to your awareness. And there are moments when you're having that discussion that I think sometimes it's like, well, this feels really obvious. And it's like, well, yeah, but you, you don't think about it. You don't practice it. You don't actually yeah. go, oh, wait, I just had a thought. How is it making me feel? Like, is it helping yeah. me or is it hurting me? Mm-hmm. What can I do with this thought? It's right? just so automatic. Yeah. 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 It, it makes sense when you spell it out, but it's that accountability of checking in with yourself. Like, not only do you understand that's what you're supposed to be doing, but are you, a- are you actually following through and doing the reflection? Because it's, it's just like, it's building a new habit. Like, it's not like you have to think about that thought process. Like you just mentioned that like mm-hmm. train of questions. Why did I think that? Is that truth? What am I going to do about that thought? You're not necessarily going to have to go through that process for every thought for the rest of your life, but it's like training your brain to respond in a healthier way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's it, just is really a, cool. it is a developed skill. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, our big sessions with the dancers are really focused on topics like that. Um, for example, with the teachers, our first session was very much focused on perfectionism and the role of perfectionism within dance, the role of the teacher in um, helping to create either adaptive or maladaptive perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about really interesting research that I think teachers should be aware of. I mean, in some ways, perfectionism is upheld as kind of like the ideal of dance, especially in ballet, where it's like, of course you wanna be perfect, that's the point. But that's really, um, there's research that shows by a, a really amazing researcher named Dr. Sana Norden Bates, if someone wants to look it up, that shows like a correlation between perfectionism and lack of creativity. The more perfectionistic a person becomes, the less creative they become. Wow. For me, that sparks such a memory of, I can remember in my late teens, like the end of my high school, other people would be doing like um, improv and things like that. Mm. And I was just like, I wouldn't touch it because it wasn't going to be good in my head. I shouldn't even go there because it's not going to be perfect. So why, why would I put myself in a place to just be exposed to more criticism? Like that's a real thing. Other people experienced too. (laughs) I'm learning, you know, and And there's actual research behind it. Like this is logic. It's just, it's logic backed up with research. And it's like, again, once it's said to you, you're going, of course, Mm -hmm. right? you know, but but it's a powerful thing to have that conversation with teachers and be like, your Mm -hmm. goal is to create an artist. Mm -hmm. Your goal is to create a dancer who can dance in any company in the world and keep up. And that involves being creative and often improvising and contributing to the choreographic process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's like stop getting in our own way here and celebrate some of the failures too, you know, and celebrate the mistakes and encourage them, you know? Yeah. Um, so those are just examples. Um, yeah. 
No, I love all of this stuff. So working with the teachers, what changes have they made? Like some practical changes that, you know, have been suggested in these seminars and are they reporting back to you like changes that they're seeing in their classrooms? Well, our hope is that they will. So to be like full disclosure, because of COVID-19, um, our start date mm-hmm. for all of this was later than it should have been. Right. Yeah. You know, because like the rest of the world, we were just like pivoting and, and figuring it out. Um, yeah. We actually didn't find out that we were funded until just before the semester started because all of the funding oh, wow. was delayed because of COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought this wasn't going to happen. Like I oh, thought man. it was dead. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we've, we've, it's all being done on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, the dancers at Point Park are doing some of their classes in person with obviously very high protocols sure. in place. Um, but we did decide, you know, this is all going to be virtual because we don't need to, you know, they need to be in the studio dancing. They don't need to be. Right creating risk for themselves being mm-hmm. together to listen to us talk. Sure, sure. Um, so we have done our initial sessions and our initial um, research survey uh, with the students and the teachers. But actually the bulk of the programming is, going, is happening this coming semester. Um, so we are having the dancers do clinical measurements um, we're using five clinical measurements. Um, those are for anxiety and depression, um, self-esteem, body anxiety, resilience, and coping. And out of 300 dancers, 106 dancers chose to take the survey. Um, it's, it's optional. Um, so I was very heartened by that. Mm. Um, that data is currently being analyzed, so I can't definitively kind of give you statistics that I would love to give you right now. Um, right. I can tell you that it was it is consistent with my concerns. Um, and the teachers, so I mean, some of the practical ideas that were given to the teachers, um, for example, putting the local crisis phone number, mental health crisis phone number on the syllabus right? Mm-hmm. Like all of your So simple. So simple. So Post simple. it in the bathroom, like in the locker room, put it on the put, mirror. Put it up next to the schedule. Yeah. You know, if there's a bulletin board with a schedule, and I mean, because of COVID, these things are a little different right now, but sure. which is why we suggested the syllabus in this case. Yeah. But, but, but exam, for example, in a collegiate setting, when, when you decide to put a, a mental health crisis line on the sy- syllabus, not only are you, are you doing kind of the right thing, you know, by giving them that access, you're also sending a really clear message about who you are and about what you value about your students. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it really is, when I say little things, it really is these little tiny things. Um, the other thing we talked about that, that is a behavior that teachers can change um, that I hear a lot from teachers in general is that there's a, you know, a fear, a fear of talking about this, um, a care for the students, but a fear that by speaking up, you're going to somehow make it worse. Um, and of course, we don't advocate for any teacher to ask, act as a therapist. Your job is not to solve their problems. Right. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, it really just comes down to empathy. It really just comes down to like, don't ignore the dancer in the corner crying because you're afraid to say something. Mm-hmm. Lean into your own humanity and just ask, are you okay? Yeah. Is there something I can do? You know, it's, it really is mm-hmm. like that simple. It's just like getting back to the basics, like just that first step of checking in on them. Cause I mean, you have to offer a solution necessarily but it's just like you said just getting back to the empathy and express concern and care i mean i can tell you as someone who's who's been on you know the the dark side of of a mental health issue like you don't expect or even want people to solve your problems but to be seen and cared Mm -hmm. about is really moving especially from a, a someone who's a an authority figure yeah um 
And yeah. all, all you have to do, I mean, you can listen and just say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I really care about you. And, and oh, by the way, I have these phone numbers and I'd like to share them yeah. with you. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think something that's important to think about here too, is that I can't speak to Point Park specifically, which seems to be your, your lab at the moment, <laughs> but thinking about, uh, I know the professional setting is that a lot of times that fear comes out of fear of not getting casted in something, losing your job, or if you are in a pre-professional program, or if you're an apprentice or something like that, or a college program even, is there the potential that you have a, an instructor or a director who's quote well known and who knows many other directors who you know, may see a student struggling and may say, yeah, I'm not going to vouch for this person. I'm not going to help them get a job elsewhere. You know, I feel like a lot of, a lot of that fear can come out of that situation. You mean the fear to share? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. And to your point, um, when in 2019, Minding the Gap did um, a a survey, an online survey on the Dance Magazine website. Um, and one of the questions we asked is, if you were having a mental health challenge, would you feel comfortable reaching out to your teacher or director? Only 10% of dancers said they definitely would. Wow. And this is 900 dancers responded. This is a large wow. sample size. Yeah. 10% said definitely. 17% said maybe. 32% um, said unlikely. 41% said not at all. So 74%, am I doing the math right? 73%. Yes. That's incredible. <laughs> wow. Are not going to talk to their yeah. teacher or director. Again, shocking, but not surprising. Yeah, I would say that, yeah, the same thing. I, I'm a surprised 10%. For me, I feel like that even seems hi is that even awful to say that but if there were a group of, high yeah right if yeah. there were 10 people that i know standing in a room of dancers yeah. i don't know if one out of 10 people dancers that i knew in my time if mm -hmm. one out of 10 of them would have even said yeah. anything right which is not a good thing it's just yeah. like i guess just amplifies how messed up some things have yeah. been and still mm -hmm. are in some ways I mean, part of the reason data like this is important for teachers to see is like, one, I can't tell you how many teachers tell me like, well, my students know I'm here for them. They know I support them. And I'm like, oh, you yes. know, you know that you're here for them. You know that you support them or that you have the intention to. But I, I definitely can't promise you that they know, you know, and that doesn't make the teacher a bad person. It doesn't, you know, like sure. it's just the dynamic of this culture. Mm -hmm. Um and, to, and the teacher could be having pressure from their director, from the owner of, of whatever, or the board of directors, you know, it, it can trickle down too. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So, yeah. Oh, it all starts at the top. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, which is why Point Park is where I am right now, because sure. I found a place where the top was like, let's do it. Right. Let's do it. Yeah. I so can that work you with have an example to hold up to other institutions and be like, look, it works. Yeah. Are That's these the dancers hope. any worse off? No. <laughs> and, and truly like, you know, when you talk about this, you know, this concern of dancers coming forward with mental health issues, I mean, they're going to come forward, right. you know, whether, whether through your dancing or through mm -hmm. your own health, even your physical yeah. health, um, yeah. the correlation between mental health and physical health at this point is fact. <laughs> yeah. Enough research. We can call it a fact. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then to teachers, I would say, you know, if you have a talented student who's having a knee issue, you're not going to be like, oh, shocker, she's got a knee issue. You're going to send her, him or her to, or they to a, mm -hmm. a physical therapist and you're right. gonna, a doctor, you're going to, you know, so why should it be different? To me, it kind of circles back to the idea that the teachers feeling that fear to bring it up it's like if they can if they can just understand <laughs> that it's a, a moment in the student's life especially teenagers there's so much going on and if they have something else going on in their personal life that's maybe contributing to this showing up in the studio 
understanding and just holding space for them to have a moment and that it's separate from their worth and it's separate from them as a dancer and their performance. Mm -hmm. And, and it's okay to hold that space for them. And like you said, let them know you're there, not just, you know, it, but like actually get them to understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so we're asking this question to a lot of different people and so far we haven't really gotten an answer. So I feel like it is a collective question that all of us are asking ourselves right now in this moment in in history. So I don't expect like a perfect (laughs) answer because I know the whole dance world is asking this question right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But what can we do to help students? Because specifically in the the ballet community, like pre-professional ballet community or any kind of pre-professional dance program, there's a very strict hierarchy that's modeled after the very strict hierarchy that you'll likely experience as a professional dancer. And uh, I talked about grooming earlier, that you would never, ever question your ballet master, or you would never, ever question your choreographer or your costume uh, designer that you don't feel comfortable or, or whatever. You would never question any of that. Um, so I think it's a pivotal point in our history right now that we're trying to find better boundaries. And we're trying to find what historically to keep and what needs to just go straight to the garbage. But what can we tell our students out there who are between the ages of, let's say, 12 and 18, who are in a pre-professional program, and they might be in a school that, quote, creates, I hate this word that you're creating a dancer, you're facilitating a dancer, not creating, Mm -hmm. but who are putting out high quality dancers. And so you know that you're in a great place of training, but may not be the most mentally healthy place. How can we help students and both parents create some boundaries for themselves for their mental health while thriving within these rigid hierarchies? You're right, that's a very hard question. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure. Um, But I do have thoughts. Um, So I think first, it's very easy when you're, especially when you're a student and especially when you're at the ages that you're speaking of in a pre-professional environment, it, it is very easy to think, I need to go to the best school and this is the best school. And, you know, for me, it was, it was, you know, I'm going to be in New York city ballet, or I'm going to be in San Francisco ballet, or I'm just going to quit. You know, like, it was like, you're just, you got to be the best. And unfortunately, like like, truly, and I can say this from watching many of my friends' careers and my friends who went on to have long careers and my friends who did not, um, that authenticity to your, to yourself and honoring how you're feeling in a given environment is more important than the name on the wall. So if you are in an environment and, and it's not the same place for everyone, right? Like for, for one dancer, an environment may, may feel safe and, and supportive because of their dynamics within that space. And for another, it could feel very abusive. You know, um, it's never as clear cut as like, this is a quote, good place. And this is a quote, bad place. It's a very, very good point. Yeah. So especially if you're a dancer who's like in a pre-professional program, you are talented enough to go someplace else. Um, And I just encourage dancers to like own that. Like you're like, go girl, you know, like you're in a, (laughs) you're in a a pre-professional ballet program in the United States of America. Like Mm -hmm. you're really good. So you can take your really yeah. good self someplace else. And maybe it's not the School of American Ballet and maybe it's not Pacific Northwest Ballet. I don't know. I'm, I'm literally just throwing stuff out. Maybe it's Atlanta. Yeah. You know, I don't know. But there are so many options out there. There are options. And I think as dancers, yeah. we just, especially young dancers, can kind of mm-hmm. pigeonhole themselves into these very arbitrary goals yes. that are based on other people's approval. When in actuality, what, what creates the most successful dancer is to be in a thrive, thriving, supportive environment in a place mm-hmm. where they feel cared about because your, your mental health and your mental wellness 
is not going to improve in a place where you don't feel cared about. Yeah. So I think that's a big one. Um, I actually think that when it comes to parents, like the parents have more power in this than the students do. In many cases, the parents are actually customers. They're shelling out right. big bucks. Mm-hmm. I would never ad- advocate for a parent like meddling, right? Like, let's not get meddly. That's not good for your dancer or anyone. Right. But what parents can do is ask thoughtful questions. If my child has a mental health issue, who will they be referred to? Does your program have a mental health program as part of its training? Even if the answer to these questions is no. If enough parents are asking these questions, it sends a very, very clear message to leadership that their customers are expecting something a little different. Yeah. So I don't know that that completely answers your question. It's a great start. It really is a great start. Um, Some practical stuff in there for us. And I think that's really important. And I think that also, um, if children are seeing their parents being empowered to ask those important questions and are starting to learn how to build boundaries at a young age, then perhaps when they get to be hiring age and they go in after their audition for the face-to-face sort of contract interview, they might be empowered to say, um, what kind of health, uh, what kind of mental health benefits do you offer? Do you have a counselor for the company? You know, they might be empowered to start asking those questions in a professional setting and actually negotiating that, because this is a whole other topic that I feel passionate about, but that there's very little negotiation uh, when it comes to contracting and you're just lucky to, here you go, have a contract. You know, there's very little negotiation and I think mental health can and should be a big part of that. So I think that's wonderful. (laughs) I mean, yeah. And I think, I mean, to your point and kind of expanding upon it, um, one of the, a very powerful thing you can do in, in a, in a, a conversation that involves conflict or an imbalance of power is to ask questions. If it's the body talk, right? You're, you've gained a little too weight, much weight. You're getting a little soft. You need to blah, 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 blah. And you're a pre-professional student. Yeah. No, me in 2001 is just sitting there shaking, saying nothing. Exactly. What asking questions can do is in that moment, you can say, okay, I hear you. I want to perform at the highest level. I want to do well. Um, what, sorry, um, what, what resources can I use? Who do you suggest I reach out to? to create a plan for myself. Mm-hmm. No one can get mad at you for asking that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, that is, that shows maturity and professionalism and a desire to accomplish what they're asking you to accomplish, even though nobody should ever be saying something like you need to lose five pounds. That all aside, let's deal with the reality sure. we're in. Yeah. Um, so I think that's another answer is, is lean into curiosity lean into the how you know don't don't try and get into the why and don't you know try not to emotionally charge it but just lean into the how in those in those moments because it's kind of like when and i don't mean to get political but like with everything that's going on right now and and it's like oh freedom of speech is being being stamped you know trifled or stamped out and my response to that is, what is it that you feel you can't say right now? What, what is it? That's pretty powerful. <laughs> what, can't, what can't you say? It's, it, I mean, part of what we're trying to do here through our podcast is to empower people, whether it's parents, whether it's students, whether it's, you know, dancers in the middle of their contract cycle or, you know, whatever it is. So, I mean, those statements are, are so empowering. And I think those are things that, like you said, as a... 2001 me (laughs) as an apprentice, as a corps de ballet member or whatever, I would never have even considered trying to open that dialogue and empower myself with that. You know, I would just go home and not eat or whatever, whatever other coping skill that I had acquired. 
And you know what? If you ask that how question, like how would you like me to do this? What tools, what resources are available to me to do this? You know, if, if the leadership doesn't have a, a good answer to that, they need to sit with that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you very well by asking that question could change things, maybe not for yourself, but for the next dancer that walks into the room. Sure. Yeah. And it's the same thing like you talked about with, if more uh, with parents addressing that with leadership as they come in, like if you're talking pre-professional students moving across the country, even changing within your local community to different schools, mm-hmm. more people asking the questions, the more they're gonna be like, oh, oh, okay. Okay, we, we, gotta, we need to take some yeah. time to think on this. And same thing with students. If you have a, if you're nearing competition season, and you're having conversations with, I would say one is too many dancers about what they need to look like leading up to competition. If they, if you start getting, I think it's the fear that it comes as pushback, but if you phrase it in a respectful high, how question and just say, Oh, I hear you. Yeah. You know, not emotionally charged. How would you like me to do this? Yeah. Put with the asterisk that teachers should not be responding with their own nutritional advice. Right. That kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, if they, they can have if you a list, have that, they can have a list of people, list of yeah. professionals, you know, that yeah. they can refer yeah. to or or whatever. I think it could, <laughs> I think it could really be impactful when the students mm-hmm. like if you feel like I can't be the only one who starts to say this, get with your friends and just yeah. have a little chat about okay, what words are we gonna say the next time she says something? Right, it's literally sure. getting down to those basics so that you can empower each other, kind of rally each other up because. You're all in the same boat, so to speak, as far as mm-hmm. wanting to progress to a professional career. So be there, support each other. It's like you said with, um, you know, wanting to empower them to, that they can, you know, take their pick of schools. You're a very talented dancer. Mm-hmm. That also means you get to advocate for yourself in your one-on-one time with your coach. Well, and yeah, I think too, anyway. like it, it, people, kids out there, if you're listening, <laughs> they need to understand that no matter how famous you think your teacher is and what their credentials are, they are also a human being and they are not larger than life. And yes, they might've had a successful career and they might've brought you this far and that's wonderful, but if it's not a right fit, it's not a right fit. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, I love 100%. all of those. I wanted to kind of wrap up as far as what does the future look like for We Are Minding and your projects? I know you said this was kind of a pilot program with Point Park, and I know COVID-19 has kind of put a fun little wrinkle in there for you, but kind of looking forward, how do you plan to approach um, other studio owners or collegiate programs for implementing your curriculum? Um, mm-hmm. And if you've already done that, what's the response been like from like the dance community or who you're reaching out to? Yeah. So, um, yeah, to me, COVID-19 has been both a hindrance and a mandate for this work to continue. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's been very, very hard to be, you know, the founder of a startup, a year, one-year-old startup <laughs> during COVID. Um, but at the same time, if this isn't the moment for radical change in mental health and dance, I don't know when that moment will be. Um, Because it's not personal anymore, right? A lot of the conversations I've had over the past several years with dance leadership about mental health sometimes can feel very defensive on their part, you know, um, that I'm somehow being accusational. Um, Which, by the way, I'm not. I, I am and it's possible that those issues exist, but I'm really just looking at it through the lens of the dancer and like, how do I get the dancer there? And then through the lens of the teacher, how do I get the teacher to a point of undoing some of this problematic learning that causes dance teaching to be problematic sometimes? Mm-hmm. Um, but look, it's not, you, you can't even, it's, it's now it's an external force, right? Like, all of the, the issues around mental health that existed in dance in 2019 now exist in dance alongside with an entire generation's lived experience of the pandemic. And so yeah. n- now's the time. This isn't, this isn't about just dance anymore. This is about, this is about dancers. This is about the art form. Um, 
half of the dance audience is current and former dancers. So maybe we should be nice to them. Maybe Hi. we should hope that when yeah. they leave dance, they still love it and they don't spend yeah. three years avoiding it like I did. Um, yes. That they don't have children as I do, that they don't want to enroll in dance class as I don't. <laughs> um, so th that I think is an important part of this discussion of mining the gap going forward. Um, so our hope is that through this work with Point Park, we can work on this program and through the lens of our research and the data we're collecting and through the feedback we're getting from dancers and teachers, we can kind of, you know, learn the hard lessons and, and make the changes. And it, really this whole thing is very adaptive. I can't necessarily tell you what session number three is gonna be because I haven't done session number two yet and the dancers and the teachers are informing me through their engagement what session yeah. number three is gonna be. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And that would be true in any space we go to. But to, to really work through the logistical lumps and bumps of doing this and to ground truth our, our idea that this can make a difference um, and then to have that experience in our ability to go into other dance spaces. So one way Minding the Gap would serve the dance community is through um, kind of higher level consulting with dance schools and institutions. And I mean that everything from Miss Debbie's ballet house to yes. the biggest schools and companies in, in the world. Um, I, I'm here for, I'm here to, to be there to work with all of them because they're all important. Yeah. Um, and you know, what we do with each of those places would look different, but the, the ideal is that the school or institution says, look, we want to change our culture to embrace the importance of mental health. And we want to create a program that rivals our physical health program. And then Minding the Gap would come in, we would help establish um, kind of best practices. We would help go through kind of seminars and things with teachers and students. And then we would help them identify mental health professionals in their area to help support them and carry forward the work. Um, and, you know, to be a referral for their dancers. Um, the, other, the other way, um, potentially at some point could be through like tuition add-on programs where if we have a partnership with a school or company, perhaps parents would have the option of, you know, adding onto the tuition to have their student part of like a virtual program that we could do with students if the, if the institution can't commit at that higher level. Um, and then hopefully eventually I'd like for us to have kind of a, a low cost subscription program for dancers so that no matter where they are, they have access to at least some of the, the skills-based work that we're doing with dancers in places that have these programs in place. So that's the hope. <laughs> I'm just speechless because <laughs> I don't know, I'm not going to cry, but I'm, I'm not going to cry. So I'm just going to mute. <laughs> <laughs> I cry all the time, Courtney. <laughs> I cried today. I know, <laughs> but I? I mean, Same. I just, my only hope I've been, I literally had a post today, guys, if this will just be a blurb about now, you know, when, when we record in advance, but the post <laughs> today for our Instagram was about like, who inspires you? And the fact that you are not only going after this for the dance community, but you are, you are chasing after it in a way that's going to change so many lives. And like you said, it really is going to change the next generation of dancers and yeah. how that's going to impact our art form. Thank you. I can't say thank yeah. you enough. And yeah, you're really, see, I told you, to both well, of us. Hey. we're going to all start crying. I will say this is the first time I've cried on the podcast. Um, but Same. okay. I knew yeah. it was going to happen one day. <laughs> I have that effect on people. <laughs> oh, I believe it. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. I mean, I, at the end of the day, you know, I always try to keep this in, in the forethought of my mind, whether I'm working on our podcast or if I'm working on, you know, lesson plans for my school or whatever, that at the end of the day, this is an art form and it's something fun and we love doing it. And I think the programs like this are only going to skyrocket those positive things about ballet, about dance that we love, because it's essentially removing the parts that make you not want to put your kids in dance, you know, <laughs> that make you maybe not 
be able to go enjoy going to see a live ballet when when the live dance is back because it's triggering for you you know and being able to go back and revisit that moment that those moments we were talking about we did a, a nutcracker episode where we just kind of broke down our hilarious stories from when we were little doing nutcracker you know like going back and being able to relive those stories in a joyful way and to maybe take an adult ballet class and because it's joyful movement and not have all of those dark clouds following you around so yeah, if I can, because it works so well with what we're talking about, maybe it's a good way to kind of wrap it up, is um, my one of my Nutcracker moments was when I was young, I was in a small school in Binghamton, New York, and it was my year to be Clara, right? Like, <laughs> you know, especially in a small school, you know who's next, you know whose turn it is. Oh, it yeah. was my year. But I'm tall. I'm 5'10". And so I was tall and so they passed me over for Clara and I was cast as Birdie Boy. (gasps) No. Talk about crushing. Wow. I will never forget. Truly, this is something that's been a guiding principle for me my, the rest of my life. I was sitting in the dressing room, crying my, my eyes out, just so upset. My friends were afraid to come near me. Right. I was so upset. And one of my teachers came into the dressing room and sat down next to me and put her arm around me. And all she said was prove him wrong. She was just prove him wrong. And, you know, with anything that's hard, there are going to be moments where you feel like you can't or where someone tells you you can't and trust me in minding the gap. I have had those moments, Um, but they're wrong. So I love it. <laughs> like, I mean, just, uh, you know, whoever you're speaking to, whoever, you know, is coming across your platform, just that, that we hope that they understand and feel that warmth of like, hey, we see you, we hear you, we're going to come sit on the floor with you and tell you it'll mm-hmm. be okay. When it's a great example of a teacher just like doing the, the thing, right? Like showing yeah, the empathy, the human, being the a human, human thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it would, yeah. What would you have done when you were 12 and it was your friend? Mm-hmm. You know, you might so not have had of... such good advice, but. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so Kathleen, that's really, I love that story. And it kind of leads us very easily into our last question. We always ask all of our guests the same question, which is what advice would you give to yourself as a young dancer? So mm-hmm. other than prove them, prove them wrong. Uh, what would you say today? Oh my. Um, First of all, I would, I would take that child by the shoulders and I would just be like, you are so beautiful. <laughs> you are so talented. Um, yeah. I really could, I was really incapable of seeing that in the moment. Um, it will get better. It will, you know, not always be easier, but it won't always be like this. Um, and you are not what you do. You are who you are. And, um, I thought my life was over when I stopped dancing. Um, I've lived a gorgeous life since, um, I probably have more of a sense of purpose in my life now than I ever have. Um, it's just hard. I think when you're young, you know, they tell you everything happens for a reason. And it's like such trite advice when you're like a teenager, you're like, Oh, right. Sure. Um, but you guys, it does. <laughs> it just it does. does. So, yeah. Oh. Wow. Well, thank you for coming on today and sharing all of that wisdom with us. Before we leave, I would love if you plug any of your either social media websites, any anywhere that our listeners can find you if they want to follow the project and get more connected with what you guys are offering. Mm-hmm. Um, so Minding the Gaps on Facebook, um, on Instagram as we.r.minding. Um, our website is wearemindingthegap.org. And, um, you know, there's a whole resources page there um, full of all kinds of links to various programs and institutions and hotlines and all kinds of things. Um, 
that can be helpful, including the Psychology Today's kind of like search bar for mental health professionals in your area. Um, Yeah, I guess wonderful. And we will put all of those links in our show notes for you guys. So you have them easily accessible at your fingertips. I'd also like to link your um, both your dance magazine article that went so viral, Mm -hmm. um, as well as the article Dance Teacher Magazine did um, about the program of Point Park. So we'll put all those wonderful links in the show notes for you guys. You can explore everything that Minding the Gap is doing for us. And outside of that, any final thoughts, Kathleen? No, this was such a great conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We really, really appreciate it. (laughs) I know. I'm just going to have to go process. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we we are really looking forward to hopefully having you on again um, in a little while once you've got some of your results back on your research. And as the program continues, we'll be following your success. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Hey, Courtney. Hey. (laughs) So um, I know that we both probably had a lot to digest from that episode. I mean, obviously, that's a lot for both of us to process and really think through. I mean, for me, obviously, I cried. Yay. So I got some going on. Um, (laughs) We were all crying at one point. It was was amazing. It was a beautiful, it was a beautiful, empowering, amazing conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So what were... Do you have anything that like really stood out that you wanted to mention real quick? Yeah. So, I mean, I know we were both like furiously taking notes the entire time, like scribbling <laughs> <Yes. laughs> down and asking questions. Um, so she said, as she was giving us her little rundown of just like her history, um, mm-hmm. she said very poignantly when, you know, when she stopped dancing, she said, quote, what else am I? Mm-hmm. And that was another moment, like what you and I had in the, in our very first episode when you said, and that, and then I stopped dancing, you know. Right. Yeah. But I think, what else am I? Is a question that so many dancers don't ask early enough mm-hmm. that they should be asking in their childhood, mm-hmm. as they're developing their identity. That yeah, I'm a dancer, but what else am I? Instead of yeah coming to your, you know, whatever age you retire, whether it's your early 20s, mid 20s, or 40s, it doesn't matter. When you have to ask that question as an adult, instead of saying, oh, what am I? You end up saying, but what am I? Right. And the tone and meeting is totally different. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I see that. that. That was one thing that really like hit me that I wrote down. Um, Also, I mean, she shared with us some, some references to some research that I know I'm going to go down like a rabbit hole um, for sure. But she was talking about um, a study that was done that showed that the more perfectionist tendencies someone has, the lower on the creative creativity scale that they are. And I mean, I think the theme of today's episode was shocking, but not surprising. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, and that was just something that really, it really clicked for me and it made sense um, Mm -hmm. and kind of feeds back into the idea that a lot of times dancers aren't treated like artists. They're treated like the medium for the art. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're treated like a commodity. And in order to get the job, you have to be a perfect commodity instead of enjoying the process and exploring your art form and being an artist, you know? Yeah, so it's, that, that's some research that I'm really, really excited to talk about or to read about and look in yourself and then come tell me all the things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. What about you? What about uh, you? How are you feeling? For me, the, she mentioned it, I think, there towards the end, but she, when she was saying about how dancers and former dancers are about 50% of your audience, so, mm, you know, mm-hmm. why... Why are we treating them like not great? And I find, I think that was one of the very first things I ever came across from her from on Instagram. I don't Mm. know if it was a quote that she had said that on a different podcast or where it necessarily Mm -hmm. came from, but it was one of those aha moments where I just sat back and I thought about my own experiences. And I think about alumni that I know that also don't want to necessarily return. And I think 
what would the culture be like? What would the future of those companies and schools be like if everyone who stepped through those doors was eager to walk back in and help yes. support and, you know, yes. encourage the next generation? Instead, you have these people who go through the programs and then on the other end of their, you know, on the next phase of their life, they're like, you know, how do I get maximum space from this, this, this place? Yeah. Um, right. How do I stay far away? It's like, well, I maybe, mean, I think maybe we should not. <laughs> yeah. I think what, without this mental health intervention that, that is currently happening and hopefully it's not just a trend and it, and it continues, but without this intervention, we're seeing the slow death of the thing that we love so much because yeah. with every succeeding generation, there's more and more people who are adverse to it at the end mm -hmm. of their career, you know, whether yeah. it's through being a student or a professional. So without this mental health intervention, it's going to completely die. Yeah. Okay, um, so we got to bring it bring it around to something positive here, you guys. We we both love the episode so much. We hope you did. I mean, I'm I am actually feeling very positive and hopeful at the end of it all with all the wonderful work she's doing. Yeah. Same, same. Okay, guys. So, one thing that we wanted to share with you today, we're so excited. We are wanting to share with you a iTunes review we got. So Courtney's going to yes. read that for us. <laughs> yes, our first uh, review. I know, I mean, we see the numbers, guys. We know you're listening and we are so thankful Yay. for your support and love. It's from j.r.2001. And she says, this podcast is a great listen. As a professional dancer, I'm enjoying it quite a bit and learning a lot too with five stars. So thank you. Thank you Yay. so much. We love hearing that because, I mean just to take it outside of ourselves, right? This is just a platform we're bringing in the other people. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're sharing a little bit from ourselves, but I'm just so glad that this is reaching and having a great impact on, on you guys. So yeah, there's that. Thank you so much for tuning in today, guys. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, we'd be so thankful if you'd leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and share our podcast with your people to help us get the word out. And if you have any questions or particular topics you'd like to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, you can email those to us at dancebetterpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at dancebetterpodcast. To catch us in our own lanes, you can follow me on Instagram at Court Ulrich, that's spelled C-O-U-R-T-U-L-R-I-C-H, to follow me on my own journey as a former dancer pursuing intentional wellness as a 20-something wife and dog mom, and we can now connect on Facebook in Strong But Struggling Young Women. You can find it directly on Facebook or the links in my Instagram bio. We're talking all about how to level up your relationship with your body image, your emotional health, and your self-worth. And you can follow me on Instagram at techballet, that's T-E-C-H-B-A-L-L-E-T, for more information on my virtual ballet programs where I integrate mindfulness work and injury prevention so that every dancer that steps into my class feels empowered to explore their movement with a whole body wellness approach in mind. Thanks so much for listening today, guys. We will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.